Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the bizarre, contentious hearing today before Jim Jordan's clown show, known as the House Subcommittee on the Weaponization of Government, at which the Republican star witness Robert Kennedy Jr., who is running for the presidency as a Democrat, denied being an anti-vaxxer and making anti-Semitic remarks, even though a video clip of him was shown claiming Ashkenazi Jews and Chinese were spared COVID-19 due to bioweapon engineering. Joining us to discuss the Orwellian nature of Republicans whining that they are being censored when their leader, Donald Trump, is hardly restrained in any way and is free to insult, impugn and incite, is Lincoln Mitchell, a professor of political science at Columbia University, where he also serves an associate scholar in the Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies. He's the author of numerous books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy, the latest of which is The Giants and Their City, Major League Baseball in San Francisco, 1976 to 1992. We will discuss his article at lincolnmitchell.substack.com, Robert F. Kennedy's Racialist and Anti-Semitic Fantasies. Then, with Russia escalating attacks on grain terminals in Ukraine, mining the Black Sea, and threatening any ship heading to Ukraine, we'll examine the impact on global food prices, with U.S. wheat futures up 8.5% today, and speak with Joe Glauber, a senior research fellow in the Markets, Trade and Institutions Unit at the International Food Policy Research Institute in Washington, D.C., where his areas of expertise are price volatility, global grain reserves, crop insurance, and trade. He served over 30 years in the United States Department of Agriculture, including as chief economist from 2008 to 2014. Then finally, we'll look into the video Trump released today ahead of the midnight deadline to appear before the D.C. grand jury that was a naked incitement to violence in the language of a mob boss and discuss how this Houdini of scofflaws, who has always been one step ahead of the sheriff and has boasted he can shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and not lose a vote, has avoided accountability so far. Joining us is Jonathan Zasloff, a professor of law at UCLA School of Law, where he teaches legal history and public policy. His recent work examines the influence of lawyers and legalism in U.S. international relations, the response of public institutions to social problems, and the role of ideology in framing policy responses. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, background briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is Lincoln Mitchell, a professor of political science at Columbia University, where he also is an associate scholar at the Salzman Institute for War and Peace Studies. He's the author of numerous books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy, the latest of which is The Giants and Their City, Major League Baseball in San Francisco, 1976 to 1992. And he has an article at lincolnmitchell.substack.com, Robert F. Kennedy's Racialist and Anti-Semitic Fantasies. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lincoln Mitchell. Always good to be here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Lincoln, and uh, his racist comments and anti-Semitic fantasies uh, were on full display today before Jim Jordan's clown show, otherwise known as the House Subcommittee on the Weaponization of Government. Uh, and the bizarre thing was, of course, he was invited there by Robert Kennedy Jr. to testify by Jim Jordan, and they, they treated each other with great affection and politeness. And, of course, behind him was Kennedy was his campaign manager, Dennis Kucinich, and the Democrats were attacking him for, for his anti-vaxxing, anti-Semitic insanity, and the Republicans were lauding him. So here you have the Democrats attacking somebody from the iconic Democratic Kennedy family. And he, of course, he was invoking the Kennedy name all the time, RFK Jr. And on the other hand, you've got the Republicans falling all over him, 
to agree with the insanity that he's been propagating. So I don't know. Was it Orwellian? How would you describe it? Not sure I would describe. I think we're past the point of Orwellian in American political life today. What's what, what I saw there was that, you know, Robert, let's be clear. If Robert F. Kennedy's name were Robert F. Masters or Robert F. Mitchell, the only thing he'd be running for is a bus, right? All he has, and he'd have 250 Twitter, Twitter followers, and, you know, that would be that. But the, the partisan reaction to him is because Robert F. Kennedy, you know, he's not running. You could see a challenge to Joe Biden from a progressive alternative that just says, you know, we need to move the party leftward, kind of a Bernie Sanders type. That's not Robert F. Kennedy. My sense is that, well, we know that Kennedy has been backed by and pushed into this by a lot of MAGA forces, not least of whom is Steve Bannon. But the more I watch Robert Kennedy, I think the, the only reason there's there's two ways to understand Kennedy's campaign as it is, such as it is. The first is that there's really something in his behavior and his makeup that's really not hitting on all cylinders. And this is just a manifestation of that. But if you want to give him a little more credit or, or perhaps try to probe a little more deeply, I should say, his play here, the only way Robert F. Kennedy comes out of this better than when he started is if he is Donald Trump's running mate. And I think that right now, with every passing day, that's an increasing possibility. It's very clear that although he has a D after his name and comes from, you know, the most famous Democratic fa family, certainly of the last century, maybe, uh, you know, he increasingly looks like a Republican, increasingly looks a lot, looks like he'd make a lot more sense in a Donald Trump, on a Donald Trump ticket than in, say, a Joe Biden cabinet or something like that. Well, because Trump is, you know, I was going to use the word star something bleep er but i can't use that word <laughs> on I, I the air that, though, yeah. but you get what i'm saying so I, I wouldn't put it past him to choose somebody like kennedy i'm actually more worried about the no labels people splitting the democratic vote than kennedy um but do, does that concern you the no labels people who are getting on the ballots in all the swing states and well, might run kirsten cinema or joe mansion yeah more likely their, their dream ticket is a mansion Huntsman ticket. And, and there's a, it, it does concern me, but it's also deeply. And, and again, I don't understand Manchin's, Manchin's strategy there. We know that if Joe Manchin runs as a no labels candidate and it's a Trump Biden Manchin election, that Manchin has zero chance of winning. And we also know that that ultimately, according to all the data we've seen thus far, helps Trump. The only question is how much, right? You could see his vote getting pushed down and pushed down that it doesn't help Trump very much. So Manchin has put himself in a position where instead of rolling the dice, running for re-election, and, you know, maybe having a one in three chance of winning, he becomes, he either, you know, embarrasses himself, Biden wins, he gets half a percent of the vote or something, or three percent of the vote, or he's the guy that got gets helps Trump get elected. So I'm not sure why Manchin is doing it. Uh, what no labels are really, there, there's two, a few things are doing here that is really concerning. First of all, the notion that Joe Biden is so far on the left that we need some kind of centrist alternative is absurd. It is based on this kind of false equivalency in both sidesism, right? Well, they have Marjorie Taylor Greene, and then there's Joe Biden. And and secondly, the, the most important question facing American politics and facing the American voters as we prepare to go to the polls in about 18 months, give or take, is do we want to commit, do we want to move the country closer to fascism or do we want to stick with democracy? And if the answer to that question is the latter, for better or for worse, our only option is the flawed, centrist, uh, too old octogenarian Joe Biden. A vote for anything else in that election is a vote for fascism. And I know people don't necessarily agree or don't want to hear that, but this is a two-candidate race, and you're either with Biden or you're with the fascists. Well, I would agree with that 100 percent, Lincoln. But at the hearing today, F.K. Jr. at times did sound like a passionate Democrat. And but he was denying everything that he said. Uh, and they even played a clip of him recently talking about how Ashkenazi Jews and Chinese were spared uh, because of bioengineering and bioweapon COVID-19. And then he denied saying it and saying, oh, that was out of context. So and then you had the Republicans, you know, like Tom Massey and others trying to get him to talk about the problems with the COVID vaccine and also 
natural immunity and all this stupid stuff that he i mean it was so embarrassing and they had a a witness there from from Breitbart this kind of nasty gutter snipe woman who is one of the hacks that push out this Hunter Biden's laptop stuff and that was the whole purpose of the hearing is that this delusion on the part of, of the Republicans that somehow their speech is being censored when their hero, their leader, their Fuhrer is free to basically, you know, he's just, <laughs> is there any restraint on Donald Trump for God's sake? He's free to insult, impugn and incite. And he's just done that with this outrageous video that he's released tonight ahead of uh, when he should have shown up to the um, grand jury in D.C. Well, you know, there's a lot there. I would start by saying that the, a, a core driving value or driving issue within the MAGA movement is white grievance, right? So the, the, the foundation from which they start is that white, straight Christian people, particularly white, straight Christian men in America are oppressed, they're getting silenced, and they have a lot to be upset about. And from there, it flows very naturally to believe that, you know, those voices are being censored. None of that is true, but that doesn't matter. The particular question of, of you know, Bobby Kennedy on this and these things, you know, we have the video, right? He said, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. There, there's stacks of video to the contrary about that. And again, I'm a political scientist, not a mental health professional. So I can I don't want to get going, get out too far ahead of my skis here. But maybe he really doesn't know all the things he said. Maybe he's that out of it. Maybe he's just being an, an opportunist. It, it is completely puzzling to me. And I also understand how, you know, we as a culture, and here I would say pretty much most of the human race fits this, you know, we don't talk enough about anti-Semitism to understand both why it is so dangerous if you happen to be Jewish, like I am, but also how it rears its head. So that statement about Ashkenazi Jews, I think if you're not Jewish and not paying a lot of attention, it just seems weird, right? What is he talking about? That's odd. But we know, going back for centuries, one of the the most the nastiest and most harmful, you know, uh, bigoted stereotypes about Jews is that they're disloyal. They're not really working. They, they're really trying to undermine the country, right? And that's deep in the DNA of the MAGA movement. And these, this notion that some virus came and killed real Americans but didn't kill Jews or Chinese, he's, he's expanded this to, to include Chinese, is, is, is really has, has strong foundations in, in, in anti-Jewish thinking that has led to the, the most ghastly experiences in the long history of, of our people. And Robert Kennedy may not be smart enough to know that. I have no reason to know whether he is or isn't. And then he comes out and says, well, my father always supported Israel, which is, you know, completely irrelevant. But I can't, I'm very grateful that I can't get inside Robert Kennedy's head. So I'm just doing the best I can to figure out what he's thinking. But in terms of, you mentioned earlier, Lincoln, of how a lot of big time Republican donors are supporting him, clearly as a spoiler. One of the questions that the minority ranking member, Stacey Plaskett, said, she brought up his ties to this character called Jason Bowles, the treasurer of Heal the Divide, which is Kennedy's super PAC, for God's sake. And she mentioned, showed his Twitter profile, which included phrases like MAGA and America First, and it turns out that in terms of this Jason Bowles' FCC filings, he's the treasurer of committees supporting Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Bobert, George Sanders, etc. And he, and he also supported uh, Herschel Walker in the 2022 Georgia campaign. So Kennedy's saying, no. He said, no, that's not true. Well, it is true. He offered no rebuttal except saying it's not true, but it's all there on the record. Of, so of what's, what's this guy that su- supports Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Bobert, George Sanders, and Herschel Walker doing uh, as, as RFK Jr.'s treasurer? Well, I think there's a few things. And, you know, remember, when Robert Kennedy, you know, metaphorically or literally pounds his fist on the table and says, that's not true, yes, of course it's true, but it's the soundbite that you then put that on Twitter and it goes viral and all of that. So, so he's playing that game. But I think the MAGA connection here has been clear, and it's been clear for a while. Bobby Kennedy Jr. is a MAGA candidate. 
is running in the Democratic Party, because if your name is Kennedy, you run in the Democratic Party. We shouldn't overlook the fact that within the Democratic Party, there is this issue about the first primary. Because remember, President Biden wanted to move it to South Carolina, and he has moved it to South Carolina, kind of. What this means is that in New Hampshire, Joe Biden very likely will not be on the ballot. Robert Kennedy Jr. will. In addition, New Hampshire is one of those states with an open primary. And now, obviously, there's a lot going on on the Republican side, but you can certainly imagine enough Republicans crossing over, Biden not being on the ballot, and somehow, you know, Kennedy doesn't win, but he gets 40-odd percent or something. You know, no, none of the above or something wins, or maybe they run a favorite son or daughter candidate to, to, for, to get the Biden delegates. But if that happens, they have a story that the faltering, doddering Biden, you know, is going nowhere. Then, of course, they go to South Carolina, which is a closed primary, and Biden will, will win 90-10, and it'll be like that the rest of the way. But from the MAGA perspective, this has the potential to be very disruptive, to use, to use you know, Bobby Kennedy is very much, Jr. is very much their useful idiot. And his game is if he does well enough, you know, you could, you mentioned um, the term, you know, a, a, Trump being a celebrity uh, bleeper, but he's also of a generation where he still thinks for, for him, that Kennedy name is still magic, right? If you're under 50 and certainly under 40 in the United States, it isn't. But Trump is in his late 70s. And it's easy to see Trump being just enthralled by the idea of running with a Kennedy. And, you know, a lot of Robert Kennedy Jr.'s messaging on some issues is indeed left of center. But fascism is not bound by ideology. It's an approach to governance. It's a relationship between the state and society. But it can be a little bit on the left. So I think Kennedy could bring potentially a lot to that ticket. If he's clever, that's what he's running for. He's not going to beat Biden, and he's not really going to embarrass Biden, and he's not really scaring the the leadership of the Democratic Party that he could win. But he has other ways that he could be very damaging in this election. So in the last uh, minute or so then, Lincoln, tell us about why you think he might become Trump's vice president, and when would such an announcement take place? Well, such an announcement could happen as late as summer of, of 2024. And again, we're assuming, and I think rightly, that Trump is the running is, is the is the nominee of his party unless there's a health issue. And Trump is, you know, he's not he's obviously not going to renominate Mike Pence. The names you've heard, I think he will be some it's not some pressure, but he thinks he you know you will hear some women's names, Carrie Lake, Marjorie Taylor Greene, but those people are are so wildly unqualified to be president that the fact that Robert Kennedy Jr. is even less qualified to be president doesn't matter. And it allows Trump to say, hey, I'm reaching across the aisle. How can you call me a far right winger? I have a Democrat, the most famous name in Democratic politics. I think that's a very potent appeal, not necessarily to voters, but to persuade Trump, who still gets that, still believes in that in that Kennedy magic just because he's so old. Otherwise, I have no idea what Robert Kennedy Jr. is doing, what he's doing, other than maybe he, he likes um, getting his family angry. <laughs> And having his wife defend him. Uh, Zach. Well, Lincoln, I, I appreciate you joining us here today, and I thank you. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Lincoln Mitchell, who's a professor of political science at Columbia University, where he also serves as an associate scholar in the Salzman Institute of War and Peace Studies. He's the author of numerous books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy, the latest of which is The Giants and Their City, Major League Baseball in San Francisco, 1976 to 1992. And he has an article at lincolnmitchells.substack.com, Robert F. Kennedy's Racialist and Anti-Semitic Fantasies. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into Russia's escalating attacks on the grain terminals in Ukraine, mining the Black Sea, and threatening any ship heading to Ukraine. Everybody loves cowboys and clowns. Just a little while But when the goodbyes are said And the spotlight goes dead There's no one left who cares to hang around To love the cowboys and clowns Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Joe Glauber, who is the Senior Research Fellow in the Markets, Trade and Institutions Unit at the International Food Policy Research Institute in Washington, D.C., 
where his areas of interest are price volatility, global grain reserves, crop insurance and trade. He served for over 30 years at the United States Department of Agriculture, including as chief economist from 2008 to 2014. Welcome to Background Briefing, Joe Glaber. Thanks very much. Nice to be here. Thanks for joining us, uh, Joe. And clearly the situation in the Black Sea and particularly the Ukrainian ports exporting grain have gotten really quite dire over the last few days with massive Russian bombardments of grain terminals, particularly in Odessa. In fact, uh, the Chinese consulate uh, also was damaged as a result of some of these missile strikes. And uh, now the Russians are saying that any ship heading for Ukrainian ports will be considered carrying military cargo, therefore making it a target. And the Ukrainians have have responded by saying that any ship heading for Russian ports to pick up grain will also be considered targets. And the White House said today, we believe that this is a coordinated effort to justify any attacks against civilian ships in the Black Sea and lay blame on Ukraine for these attacks. So how do you see things developing, Joe? Well, you're right. I mean, this is you, you have to look back to last year when the war started. You know, the 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 I mean, the war was was bad enough, but it also uh, the closure of the Black Sea for Ukraine exports really put a lot of stress on the the Ukraine producers and and uh, just the ability to export. A uh, little bit was going out through the West. Uh, but the Black Sea uh, Agreement has enabled some almost 33 million tons of agricultural products to be exported over the past year. And that's really helped, one, get product to the rest of the world, but also uh, helped uh, raise prices in Ukraine for producers who are uh, right now suffering from, have been suffering from low prices and a uh, difficult situation. So the Russians have had a bumper crop this year and the Ukrainian wheat crop is just coming in. But there's no comparison, right? The Russians are, are doing well as far as grain production and exports, but the Ukrainians are down, what, between 30 and 40 percent because of the war, right? Yeah, that's that's right. That, and that's particularly this year. Last year, they had a good crop, but it were unable to market it effectively and, and, and even harvest it obviously, because some of that area was in occupied uh, areas or in war zones. But um, but this year has been really affected with plantings down 35, 40 percent, both for wheat and maize. And of course, they're very large producers and exporters of both those commodities. So if the Russians are laying mines in the Black Sea, as, as the White House has warned, this tit-for-tat could get really dangerous, couldn't it? I mean, if uh, the Russians start sinking bulk carriers heading towards Ukrainian ports and then the, the Ukrainians retaliate by sinking bulk carriers heading for Russian ports, then it's a, a real escalation, isn't it, into a naval war in the Black yeah. Sea? Well, I think it's certainly a huge escalation. And, and let's talk about the Ukraine side first, um, that, you know, with the, the termination of the Black Sea Grain Initiative, I think already you pretty much had shut off any chance of really getting much out of uh, Black Sea, just be just in the sense that um, uh, Russia had said earlier on Monday, at least, that it wouldn't protect any ships, it wouldn't uh, give safe passage to ships. So insurers already were were increasing rates to to ship uh, to put ships into the odessa ports and now of course that's with with the bombings and and uh drone attacks it's uh, you are not going to see any ship going into uh ukraine waters I think the issue on Russia is a, is a little different in the sense that um, it's unclear to me how, if they're going to be able to continue to ship wheat. Um, I mean, we certainly hope so in one sense in that they are, uh, you know, contribute to 20 percent of global uh, wheat exports. And and uh, but the and, and that's very important for world food security. But uh, it could be with additional uh, hostilities in the region that 
they may have a very difficult uh, time shipping wheat as well. You know, as far as Ukraine is concerned, right now, unfortunately, because of the war and because of, of the impact of, of low prices on Ukraine producers, they are, they are uh, producing a lot less, as we said, down 35, 40%. What they are producing, however, could probably be exported through the solidarity lanes. These are the, the overland routes through uh, Western Ukraine into Eastern Europe, down the Danube to uh, ports in, uh, in Romania. And that's very costly. Uh, way of doing it. They've they've been exporting volumes over the last few months that are essentially high enough that they could accommodate what Ukraine has produced this year. But understand that that comes at a lot of tension with the neighbors. Um, uh, there was a lot real concern with Poland, Hungary, Slovakia, Romania, and Bulgaria all complaining that a lot of this uh, Ukraine uh, production was ending up in their backyards. The EU has worked to get an agreement where uh, Ukraine agrees to just transship through those regions, but understand that additional exports compete with barges, they compete with rail cars, they compete with port facilities. That all raises the cost, just not for, for Ukraine producers, but other producers in the region. So it's, it's far less than ideal. Well, indeed, you know, Poland is being very helpful to Ukraine in terms of military assistance, but yes. they've shut the door, haven't they, on Ukrainian wheat exports? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They, are, uh, they have been very vocal about, uh, uh, you know, their farmers being hurt by lower prices because of some, produ some production, not, not all. Some has transshipped through the region, but still, again, you are competing for rail cars, other things that Polish producers use as well. And so that's, and, and when, when we talk about increasing transportation costs, understand that these guys are all selling in world markets. So you can't just pass those on to world to consumers. Those get eaten pretty much by producers in, in the form of lower prices. So the Russians, though, have been able to export their wheat through the Black Sea, through the Bosphorus, right? And now they're basically threatening any ship heading towards Ukraine, saying it's carrying military supplies. And according to the White House, they're also starting to mine the waters. Now, the early in the war, the Ukrainians mined a lot of the waters around their ports to prevent an amphibious landing of Russian Marines. And that's caused complications. But let's try and get some clarity here. Will the Russians be able to continue to export their grain and will they be able to shut down the Ukrainians' ability to export their grain? I think the, 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 the latter, I think, absolutely. They, they, will, they will be able to shut down Ukraine's ability to export through the Black Sea. The real question is, do they, will they have an adverse effect on, on, by virtue of their bombing and other things on grain facilities to upset exports going elsewhere as well. I think that's less likely. But turning the, 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 to the other question, that is, well, the impact on Russia, I think that's less clear uh, in terms of whether or not the increased escalation will sufficiently hamper Russia's ability to um, export through the Black Sea. Well, if the Ukrainians are saying that they're going to sink the ships in the way that Russia's threatening to sink the ships, based upon the notion that they're carrying arms, then wouldn't that drive up the insurance? And uh, Yeah, presumably so. I mean, and all it, all it takes is one drone attack or whatever to, to, to get that. So, yes, I think that, that's, a, that's a real concern. So... I mean, Russia was... Uh, just understand, Russia was able to export last year... Um, their exports during the first couple of months of the war were down significantly, but they had picked up by by springtime, even before the Black Sea, and even while Ukraine was, um, you know, had 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 some actions against some of the Russian ships, they were still able to get through there, and and, and ships were still being insured. But I think you're at, you're absolutely right. It, it all depends on how the commercial reinsurers look at this, how. He, you know, whether or not they'll continue to think this, these, you know, they can risk uh, insuring uh, vessels uh, loading in Russian ports. 
Well, the Russians, at least uh, the Kremlin, said the reason they pulled out of the grain deal was because they thought it was one-sided, it was helping the Ukrainians too much, and that they couldn't get sanctions relief on insurance, etc. Because that seems like an absurd lie, given that the war has cut Ukrainian production by 40%, as you've made clear, Joe. So is this Russian pullout of the UN-brokered grain deal to do with the blowing up of the Kirsch Bridge and the fact that Putin is just mad as hell at Turkey for allowing Ukrainian prisoners to return from captivity that they were being held in Turkey and for Turkey helping Sweden and Finland into NATO? I mean, is this just a hissy fit yeah, on Putin's there, part? Uh, there's, there's no question... Um, you know, when when Russia suspended the agreement back in uh, late October uh, 22, and then, you know, every time it's been up for um, reauthorization, which Russia has insisted happen every two months, uh, I think they've had four reauthorizations. They have um, they have demanded uh, essentially two major things. One is is improvement, uh, allowing Russian banks to have access to the SWIFT system. Uh, so that uh, countries that want to use credits uh, to import Russian wheat, they can use Russian banks to do so. That I don't know what the status of that is, is, um, but but uh, you know the the sanctions on the Swiss system were put in obviously for for other reasons, non-ag reasons. The other thing has been reopening of the ammonia pipeline that runs from uh, the Volga River down to Pevdeni, which is one of the three ports under the, the Black Sea Grain Agreement on the on the Black Sea. And um, that pipeline, you know, uh, Russia exports about 60% or more of the uh, ammonia that they produce. Ammonia is a critical uh, feedstock for fertilizer production. Um, and that pipeline has been blocked since the war started, not surprising. And more recently, uh, about the time the dam was uh, damaged uh, a couple of months ago, so too the pipeline also suffered damage. Russia has wanted that reopened. They claim that that's been a, a, an essential part of the Black Sea Grain Agreement since the beginning. Ukraine says it's not part of the, the, the deal. Um, so th those two issues were also have been been with uh, have been conditions that Russia has insisted on, but in the past has always at the end signed the agreement to extend, uh, this time not. And so whether or not these other factors that you mentioned, you know, the um, damage to the pipeline, the uh, Turkey's actions or the damage uh, most recently to the bridge. Plus, you have an es uh, you do have an escalation in the war itself with the counteroffensive going on in, in uh, eastern Ukraine right now. So there's a lot of things I think factor into um, you, that one could imagine might be reasons why Putin decided to pull out of the agreement and to further escalate by by bombing. But who knows? I mean, this has been, um, I, it, it's a miracle this agreement's held together for as long as it has, on it, I think some would say. But um, it's, it's certainly a shame that it, it's over, at least for the time being. So, Joe, just in the last couple of minutes, let's talk about the global consequences, particularly to third world countries that depend upon the grain and Lebanon as well. Because of this escalation in the Black Sea, Thursday, the prices jumped 8.5% for wheat futures here in the United States. Uh, so what does it say about how the rest of the world is going to be impacted because obviously there's plenty of Canadian wheat in other countries. And China, by the way, got the bulk of Ukraine's, I think about a third of Ukraine's exports. So how of do you course. see things, how do you see things shaking up in the next few months? Yeah, the, so so two things. One is, I, I think if it were just a matter of closure of the Black Sea ports to Ukraine, I think the, 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 the main brunt is going to be borne by Ukraine farmers for, for that amount, just in the sense of, uh, again, their their production is already down considerably. Most of what they produce, they'll still be able to export, albeit in a very costly manner, through the West. 
That means longer term, though, that I think there's further disincentives to plant wheat and corn next year. And I think that's the real tragedy. But the further escalation of the war brings Russia into the equation, I think, as you've pointed out. And if, if Russia isn't exporting wheat, then I think we have all of a sudden uh, we're back to where we were last February with a lot of people wondering where the world's going to find sufficient amount of wheat over the course of the the year. So um, I think, you know, we were able to really dodge a bullet over this past year. One, the Black Sea Grain Agreement actually helped get out a little bit of the Ukraine wheat that was cut off because of the war. Uh, But also we had very good harvests. in a lot of areas of the world. Canada had a great crop last year uh, compared to the one in 2021. Uh, Europe had a good crop. Russia had a record harvest. Um, you know, China had a good crop. Uh, the U.S. had a mediocre crop, but it, it still, I think if you look at the overall world uh, picture, we had ample supplies. The problem is we didn't rebuild stocks. And with, uh, again, uh, uh, you know, when normally when you see real high prices like what we saw prior to the war back in January of 2022, you'd ask any analysts like myself, and I think people would have said, well, that is going to um, result in farmers planting more. We'll see some, you know, with normal weather, see some uh, good production, see rebu- rebuilding the stocks. That didn't happen. And I think, unfortunately, that means we're currently looking at carryouts this year. Uh, that is the inventories at the end of the year, still not being any bigger than they were last year. And that's what what happens when you take a big producing country like Ukraine out of the picture is you have to make up for them somewhere. And so we've been able to make up for them, but we haven't been able to rebuild. And so what what worries me is if you take Russia out of that equation too, then you you do have some real big problems with getting sufficient wheat. Now, again, I think it's still yet to be determined whether or not how much this may affect Russia, um, Russian exports. But if it does, then I think we're uh, it could be very serious for many countries, particularly those countries who depend a lot on wheat. So you're talking Mideast, North Africa, um, Central Asia. uh, These countries have just a very, very large share of their calories come from bread or pasta or uh, Cusco's consumption. Well, Joe Glaber, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Yeah, no, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Joe Glaber, who's a senior research fellow in the Markets, Trade and Institutions Unit at the International Food Policy Research Institute in Washington, D.C., where his areas of interest are price volatility, global grain reserves, crop insurance and trade, and he served for over 30 years in the U.S. Department of Agriculture, including as chief economist from 2008 to 2014. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the video Trump released today ahead of the midnight deadline to appear before the D.C. grand jury that was a naked incitement to violence in the language of a mob boss. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Jonathan Zasloff, who is a professor of law at UCLA School of Law, where he teaches legal history and public policy. His recent work examines the influence of lawyers and legalism in U.S. international relations, the response of public institutions to social problems, and the role of ideology in framing policy responses. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jonathan Zasloff. It's great to be here, Ian. Very much appreciated. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Jonathan. And uh, today, Donald Trump released a very threatening video uh, as the midnight deadline for him to appear before the January 6th grand jury closes in. And this is really an incitement. (laughs) There's no two ways about it to get his followers uh, riled up and possibly join him in, in the streets. Who knows? We know that the FBI has said that the greatest threat to 
America is, is in effect, domestic terrorism. But this was kind of a rallying cry, and we've seen his domestic terrorists, I think which is a fair way to describe those that raided and wrecked the Capitol on January the 6th. So this is a man, you're a historian of the law, this is a man who knows how to weaponize defense, to put it mildly. Well, that's it's true. You know, he he certainly you know he he knew very well on January sixth that he was inciting violence, and he did. Um, uh, and so he has no problem of doing it again. Um, we should have at least a certain amount of cynicism, also. That remember, he's also trying to do this because he wants to uh, attract as many campaign contributions. I don't want to say campaign contributions, but as much money as he can. Remember, more than anything else, Trump is a grifter. And so he will do anything to try to bring in more money, um, as he always has, especially because he has so many lawsuits going now that he's having a hard time paying his lawyers. Um, but he has no problem with, uh, with the incitement of violence, um, and he has no problem with uh, the use of you know, what might be called paramilitary forces to, to assist him. Um, it's going to be more difficult now because he's not the president, and so uh, the, the full force of the federal government uh, would would be there. I, at the end of the day, if I'm going to put together, say, the U.S. Marshal Service and the and the U.S. military against uh, you know the ragtag people on Truth Social, I, I, I'd I'd put my money in the federal government. But he has no problem with inciting violence, and and that's a and that's a classic example of sort of a, a of a fascist political formation. Uh, whether it's you know Mussolini in the black shirts or the or the the early Nazis and the and the Sturmab Tailung. Well, this was definitely, uh, this video, <laughs> definitely, you've almost described it. It was a fan video that he released on, on social media with a threatening mob boss kind of uh, aura to it with audio oh, yeah. featuring expletives that I can't repeat on the air. Understood. <laughs> so Understood. Uh, it's, it's pretty raw stuff. But, Jonathan, Donald Trump is the Houdini of scofflaws. And he famously said uh, that he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and get away with it. Mm -hmm. Can he get away with uh, inciting a coup against the United States government itself and stealing highly classified documents and sharing them with God knows who? Well, he might. I mean, it all depends on... We, we don't know at this point what uh, evidence the special counsel Jack Smith has. Uh, the documents case seems like a very, very strong case. But, of course, remember, there is a very, very pro-Trumpist judge in Florida who is overseeing the documents case. We don't know what she's going to do, but I think that there is a, a decent chance, there is a reasonable probability that not only we should put the thumb on the scale for him, uh, but she could simply rule at a certain point that uh, the prosecutor hasn't deduced enough evidence and declare him innocent as a matter of law on the on the January 6th case, again, we don't know what he's got. We don't know what Jack Smith has. Um, uh, but uh, that case will probably be tried uh, if he's indicted, and it looks as if he will be. We don't know. That will be tried in, in D.C., uh, where you won't have uh, such uh, favorable uh, judges uh, for him. Uh, and that will be difficult uh, for him. Um, remember, he didn't say that he could get he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and get away with it. He said he would shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and he wouldn't lose a single supporter, which I think is true. But uh, I wouldn't say at this point. I mean, you're right. He does have a tendency to you know always skirt the law. But uh, I think that uh, Smith is a very professional guy, and uh, depending upon what he's got, uh, he will be in a very very strong position. You know, there's a famous line from. Uh, Ralph Walter or Emerson, that if you strike at a king, you got to kill him. Uh, and so uh, I think Smith will move very deliberately, but he'll make sure to to uh, bring the case with a lot of evidence. And remember, let's not forget that down in Atlanta, in a state case, Fonnie Willis, the, the DA of uh, uh, Fulton County in Georgia, uh, is preparing an indictment uh, against him that should come down sometime in August, or at least that's what the at least that's what the talk is. So um, you know, he's going to have to battle on a whole lot of fronts. Well, he was tutored by Roy Cohn, yes, who exactly. was the mob lawyer, right? And, right, exactly. And, and, and he's many times, he's talked you know, in this kind of mob boss way. You know, I've known, Absolutely. I've known 
guys that flip all my life and all that kind of yeah, mafia. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So the, the mafia tactics are what to intimidate judges to find a juror and they they, and they 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 can try. Sure, they can try. But remember, a lot of mafia guys go to jail. Well, that's, uh, so and, and Roy Cohen got, I think, got disbarred because of his yeah. ties to the mafia, didn't he? Yeah, yeah uh, I, I don't remember exactly whether it was ties to organized crime. I think he did get disbarred. That's that's true. But yeah. I think that you're right that that's the way Trump talks. I mean, it's it's very much, you know, the idea of somebody flipping on you and the idea of somebody, uh, you know, the idea of, of, well, you know, I regard these indictments as a badge of honor. You know, that's the way organized crime figures talk. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, he'll, he'll certainly operate in that way. Um, remember also that, you know, the more he does this, this also helps him, uh, in the, uh, in the Republican presidential primary. Uh, you know, we're already seeing that, you know, with one or two exceptions, every Republican candidate has come out in support of him. Uh, so in one sense, he's doing this also because this is shoring up his support in the Republican party. Um, it's, he wouldn't be the first person if he's in jail to run for president, um, but uh, 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 certainly nothing we've seen in our lifetime. Well, but Eugene Debs was, was right. in jail. Was because a socialist. Of, <laughs> he was a socialist, and he, he was in jail because he criticized World War I, and, right, exactly. and they nailed him under the Espionage Act. Right, right. But he was mostly in jail because he was a leftist, wasn't he? I mean, right, right, that's right. That's right. So usually you don't think about uh, Donald Trump and Eugene Debs in the same breath. Um, but, sure. you know, that's the, that's, the, that's the age that we're living in nowadays. Right. Um, and I think in one sense that Trump may be counting on this, but he's, that he's counting on the fact that what will really get him out of all of this is if by some chance he's able uh, to, get, uh, to win the election in, in November, November of 2024, um, he can either just tell the Department of Justice to uh, to uh, uh, dispense with the case, or he can pardon himself. I mean, in one sense, the, his election now is is that you know, that that's his. Well, you know, I hate to say it, trump card uh, for all of this, and that may be what he's counting on at this point. But as somebody who teaches legal history at mm -hmm. UCLA Law School, what happened then, Jonathan? to the party of law and order. You just said that um, almost all of the rivals running for him, including the mm -hmm. people that represent the party, in particular mm -hmm. in the House, Speaker McCarthy, they're just mm -hmm. falling over themselves to support him. Right. And right. Yet well, his behavior is more and more lawless. And, and every time he gets nailed for breaking the law, at least indicted, the support even increases. Well, you know, at this point, I think that, well, first of all, I think it's important to understand that the conservative movement of the Republican Party was never really the party of law and order. Never. Um, there were several indictments under Reagan. There were people who went to prison. Uh, Michael Deaver, for example, was, was convicted uh, of perjury, uh, one of Reagan's closest advisors. Uh, there were uh, loads of prosecutions under George W. Bush. Uh, you know, what the Republican Party meant always by the party of law and order was basically the party of law and order against black people. I mean, there's really no other way to put it. Um, but Trump, in this sense, again, as you said earlier in our conversation, he said, look, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and not lose a supporter. And, and he has a very strong base, which... I believe, comprises the majority of the Republican Party base. He owns the party base. And because of that, uh, it's, it's uh, for any Republican politician to go against, that means that they're risking their political career. Now, there are worse things to happen uh, than losing office because you stand up for principle. I mean, Liz Cheney, who I've never been a particular fan of, uh, did it. And, you know, she's been kind of a hero throughout all of this process. But if the only thing you care about is holding on to office, um, then they're simply not going to cross him. There's one other aspect of this, which I think should be mentioned, uh, which I think is, is actually very, very relevant in my view. Um, I think that, that other Republican candidates in this case are either hoping to be on the ticket with Trump and so they won't attack him, or, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, Trump is 77 years old, he's morbidly obese, and his entire diet consists of cheeseburgers, as far as I can tell. And I think that in the stress and strain of a presidential campaign, many of these other Republican candidates are waiting for an actuarial event. Uh, <laughs> you mean choking on a Big Mac? 
Yeah, uh, or a stroke or a heart attack or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that, and in, in fact, that's what most Republicans and political consultants, if the, the best solution at this point for the Republican Party is, is for Trump to keel over. Uh, because then they can maintain their devotion to him. It's much, it's much easier to maintain a devotion to somebody who isn't alive, uh, because then they can't contradict you. Then they can maintain their devotion to him, and he won't be there to undercut them. Uh, so I, I don't think that that is an insignificant factor in many people's thinking. Uh, you don't know how long this guy's going to live. Um, and, uh, uh, if something happens over the next 18 months, uh, if they have not angered the Republican base, then they'll be, then they, they could be in a position to be the, the replacement. But I, I realize that's kind of morbid, but again, that's, that's where yeah. we are nowadays. Well, of course, but the focus is on Biden being too old. Um, right. But, so you're but shifting he, the focus a little there. Um, well, I think I think I think Trump is by far a greater risk. Biden is in much better health. Sure. I mean, there are, neither of them is a spring chicken, but Biden is in much better health. Right. But Trump's mo in order to defend himself from the indefensible is to attack law enforcement. Again, sure. again, it goes back to this extraordinary nature of the current Republican Party. Uh, yeah. And how much more damage can you do? They beat up a whole bunch of Capitol Police and, and five people died mm-hmm. on January the 6th. And now he's going after the FBI and, and right. just about anybody, the DOJ, you name it. DOJ, ATF. I mean, the Republican Party is the defund the police party at this point. Right. But can somehow that message get through? I mean, you normally, I, I imagine a lot of his supporters are sheriffs and policemen and, you know, white wing guys, right? I think that's right, but it's it's always, particularly if you're attacking federal law enforcement, well, it's the federal government and it's big government and people support you anyway. I mean, you know, the the people are, the, the human animal is always capable of having contradictory ideas in its head at the same time. Um, and, and I don't think that that would be a particular, for the, for the Republican core, uh, I don't think that that would be a, a problem at all. Uh, you know, this is, I mean, it's really, it was really right out of 1984. You know, we've always been at war with East Asia. Uh, all the things that we told you beforehand aren't the case. And now you got to turn on a dime and believe in something else. And the, the Republican base has seen fit to do that. Um, the thing that would really bail him out, uh, in one sense, electorally. Uh, would be some sort of economic crisis, um, and uh, that that would really that would cause a significant problem that they could somehow pin on the incumbent. Uh, I was convinced uh, that that was one of the reasons why the Republicans were going to uh, try to blow through the debt ceiling and cause an international financial crisis because the economic damage would hurt Biden. They didn't, and and that was a bit of a surprise to me, um, uh, but. Uh, that will be the thing that could rescue him. If the, if the economy really turns sour, Biden's approval ratings aren't very high as it is, uh, that could be something that would do a significant damage, although, again, it looks like we're going to see a soft landing. Um, but, you know, he, he's... Uh, look, this is not a guy who's shown that he's particularly popular, meaning Trump, right? I mean, they, they did badly in the 2022 elections. He lost the 2020 elections. They got wiped out in 2018. When he won in 2016, he didn't get a majority. He really kind of drew an inside straight to win. Um, he's, not, uh, he's not very good at the top of the ticket. But that's the bind that they're in, because if they don't nominate him, then he'll just sit there and attack whoever the Republican nominee is. Right. But the other possibility, of course, and I think is more likely, is sabotage on the Democratic side. You've already got the no-labels people right. that are spending a lot of money to put invisible candidates, perhaps Joe Manchin's Kirsten Sinema, right. on the ballots, and that's hard to do. The last time it happened was Ross Perot, because he had Perot. the money to do it, and they're, right. do, they're putting them on Arizona and other swing states. So that's a scary right. thing for the Democrats. I think and that's early, right. That's earlier on today's program, we were talking about the bizarre hearings today with RFK Jr. was testifying at the invitation of Jim Jordan for his clown show, Weaponization right. of Government, you know, Kangaroo right. Court. And <laughs> there's a rumor that... RFK Jr. is angling to become Trump's vice president. So yeah, I, I I would be very surprised if he became was put on the ticket. 
Um, but I would not be surprised at all to see him uh, have a, a prime speaking slot at the Republican National Convention. Uh, and if, God forbid, Trump wins, I wouldn't be surprised at all to see him in the cabinet or some sort of high-level position. The no-labels thing could be a significant problem in, 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 in swing states um, because they will draw from you know, suburban Republicans who tilted toward Biden uh, on, uh, on this. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised to see Kirsten Sinema um, be their be their standard bearer. I would not be surprised to see that. It would it would surprise me a little bit to see Mansion uh, on the um, on the ticket, but I wouldn't be surprised to see Cinema. Um, uh, Mansion is doing exactly what you would expect a Democrat in West Virginia to do if he was going to run for re-election in West Virginia, which is essentially try to separate himself from the party at all times. But Cinema is now in the position where. You know, she is way behind in the polls as an independent in Arizona. Uh, and so, uh, but she loves being the center of attention. And so I wouldn't be surprised to see her try to do that. We still don't know much about what No Labels is doing. Um, uh, but uh, I think that could be, that could be something that could, uh, that could create a significant problem. And, and you could get to the position where, uh, you know, we we always have this every four years. There could be a situation where, you know, neither side gets to 270 electoral votes and it gets thrown into the House. And then it would depend on who who wins the House. Well, but it's it's the state delegations and they have right. a Republican advantage if that happens. So just right. in closing, then, uh, Jonathan, sure. if we go forward to this time next year, undoubtedly Trump's going to be involved in various court cases, yeah, one in right. Florida. We don't know. I mean, how much she's going to delay it, but it'll, something will be happening on that one. The the most recent one, January the sixth. I think they're going to try and get that one going earlier. Um, mm-hmm. And then you've got Fannie Willis in in Georgia. You still got New York. So yep. that's at least four trials. Right. I mean, right. This has never been happening. I mean, again, I go back to the fact that you teach legal history. This is extraordinary, <laughs> yep. is it not? I right. mean, how that's, unprecedented that, it is to have that's right. a presidential candidate, let alone a former president, <laughs> right. in four trials at the same time running for president. My God. Right. People around the world are going to say, well, maybe. What, what's wrong with the Americans? They, they had this guy once. He was a catastrophe. Why are right. they considering him again? And look at the evidence against him. I, I think that's right. And, you know, this is this is one of the things about that. It doesn't really matter what in one sense. I mean, it, it matters, obviously, what Biden does internationally. But the possibility of America going crazy again is already now baked in to all of our international commitments and all of our international relationships. Um, and this is one of the things that is beginning to move uh, the global balance of power away from the United States as you know has been the case for a long time in any event. Um, you know the Europeans are going to have to realize that they they just can't count on the United States because who knows what's going to happen. Uh, I think I think that's right. Um, the fundamentals though still favor Biden uh, at this point. I mean if if I had to bet the farm on somebody, I would still bet on Biden. But the problem is that you know. Even if Biden had a 65% chance of winning, that still gives the other guy a 35% chance of winning. And we know what happened in 2016. That was the same odds, and we know what we got. Well, Jonathan, I thank you so much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. No no worries. Always love being on the show and always love uh, speaking to you and listening to you. Well, thank you, Jonathan. And again, I've been speaking with Jonathan Zasloff, who is a professor of law at UCLA School of Law, where he teaches legal history and public policy. His recent work examines the influence of lawyers and legalism in U.S. international relations, the response of public institutions to social problems, and the role of ideology in framing policy responses. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. 
Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now. Disappear.